Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Four years after the Pentagon's massive household goods moving contract went out for bid, things are still in limbo. The latest challenge has to do with IT integration problems between DOD and its prime vendor. But once those are worked out, the department faces an even bigger problem. It might not have any movers to do the work. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has been talking with moving industry officials about the transition to the new Global Household Goods Contract, GHC. He writes about it in the Federal Report this week and joins me now. And Jared, this has been a difficult contract to get underway. They're in the systems integration contract, but that's not the only issue. Yeah, this thing has just been dogged by problems, Tom, over and over again. The, the latest issues that we talked about a few weeks ago are U.S. Transportation Command and HomeSafe, the prime contractor in this, are running into some IT integration issues. Really, two different new systems had to be built to make this all work, one on the contractor side, one on the DOD side. Marrying those two up apparently has not been easy. They are in the middle of some final testing this week, maybe done by the end of the week, and we should find out how that's going. Meanwhile, much bigger issue that's just really now coming to the surface is we really are looking like we're going to have very low participation in this contract among the moving companies that are currently providing services to DOD under the traditional legacy system, which is called DP3. A couple of reasons for that. The companies that I've talked to, and I've talked to several at this point, say that really no one in the industry is willing to participate for two large reasons. One is the rates that HomeSafe is going to be paying are much lower than what they're receiving right now, and in fact, much lower than what they were receiving back in 2019, pre-pandemic times before costs started going up. And then to make things more complicated, this new contract, the Global Household Goods contract, is a service contract, unlike the previous system. And like with all of other service contracts in the government, it's accompanied by the Surface Service Contract Act, which means that you need to pay prevailing wages, which are set by the Labor Department for whatever market you're working in. That's an entirely new system for all of these moving companies. They say the combination of these two things would make pretty much every move that they did under the system unprofitable. It's not that they don't want to do the work. It's that they can't, they say, because they would lose money. They have then pressure from both sides, the low rates under the New Deal, which is yet to be implemented, and then prevailing wages is just kind of code for union wages, and many of them might be non-union shops to start with. Yeah, and it's not the amounts that they really they really stress here. It's it's the complexity of implementing a system like that. Because think about who the who the actual employees are in the moving industry. You have some people who are like warehouse workers who are already paid on an hourly basis. Be fairly easy to implement something like the service Con service contract act for folks like that. The issue gets into when you talk about drivers and packers because. Uh, an hourly wage is fundamentally at odds with how the rest of the moving industry works. They are actually movers, not just in DOD, but across the country are, are exempt from a lot of wage rules, including in the government contracting space, the Service Contract Act, because they're covered by tariffs. They're specifically exempted um, because they're in that tariff system. And, and, and the way it works is essentially they have published rates that say, here's how much we're going to charge a customer to go from point A to point B during this time of year for how many pounds. And, uh, you know, they charge that rate to the to the to the customer and the driver makes a percentage of that. Then the packers make a percentage of that. So switching that over to an hourly wage that is set per locality is an entirely different system. And they say it's probably impossible for them them to implement because let's say you have a DOD shipment on your truck, a military family shipment on your truck. 
Then on the way out to deliver that shipment, you pick out pick up another family shipment that happens to not be a government shipment. You're probably going to end up having to pay under both systems. In, in other words, the company would have to pay the driver an hourly wage in addition to the tariff wage because now that moving company is operating in two completely different payment systems. It's a very strange situation. Yeah. Is there a path to resolving it? It seems like you have conflicting, basically, laws under which both sides feel they should operate. Yeah. uh, Unfortunately, this whole Service Contract Act issue came as a bit of a surprise to the movers. Technically, there's no reason it should have because it was specified back in 2019 when the original request for proposals first went out. But important to remember, a lot of these folks, really none of these folks, are government contracting experts. Although they do a lot of government business, it's been under completely different terms in this tariff system. So this really comes down to working things out between these moving companies and HomeSafe, which is going to be the prime contractor under GHC. That's the biggest change in this system is that there's now one company that's going to be overseeing all military moves. And then all of the actual movers are subcontractors in that service contract, largest service contract in the government's history under GHC. So it's really between the prime and all the subcontractors at this point. There's relatively little that U.S. Transportation Command can do at this point. Really, the only possible outcome here is either Transcom, or I'm sorry, uh, HomeSafe rather, increases its rates to a level where these companies feel like they can, um, where they can actually turn a profit, or this contract doesn't get fully implemented. A lot of the work still stays in the legacy system. I think we just don't know enough yet about implementation to see how that's going to shake out, Tom. And what is the timeline here? When is the global household goods contract supposed to be in place? And is there a way that Transcom can extend the legacy contract if they have to? I, I don't think there's really any reason they would need to cancel the, the legacy contract at any at any point certain. The new GHC contract was supposed to have been implemented already. The idea was to have it up and running in time for peak season last year. That obviously didn't happen. The, the, the main reason they've given is because of these IT integration issues. It's unlikely to happen by peak season this year. They've already said just because of those same IT issues, what they're going to start doing uh, on the front end as soon as they get some of that worked out is some of these um, short distance, local, simple moves and see if they can make some of those work under the new system to start working out some of the bugs. And is there a danger that some of the subcontractors could say, you know what, this doesn't look like it's going anywhere and just duck out of it. And then when the GHC does take place, then there will be simply less competition for task orders. Yeah, what I've been hearing from movers is that a lot of them are already having to do that. The, the industry is a little bit interesting. DOD only makes up about 20% of the total household goods moving market in the U.S., but there are certain companies that are very military heavy that have made very intentional decisions to put a lot of their uh, interest and effort into that military moving market. So you have some companies where it makes up half of their work, 70% of their work, And those companies right now, I'm told, are doing everything they can to figure out how to diversify their customer base so they can move more of their business back out into the normal tariff system that they've become accustomed to because they just don't think they can make money off of most of these DOD moves. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. 
Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. 
So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human centered. The human centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just in time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so, that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils, that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.